Once a group of soldiers were receiving training in hand-to-hand combat, the drill sergeant quizzed one of the trainees. He said, what steps would you take if someone charged you with a large, sharp knife? The new recruit, he replied, I'd take big steps. (laughs) Well, Luke chapter 7 starts with a soldier who takes a big step. The Roman legion was one of the finest fighting forces the world had ever seen. This centurion had never been defeated until now. For he has finally met a foe he can't conquer. And in response, he takes a giant step toward Jesus. Luke chapter 7 begins. Now when Jesus concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Understand, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men. It was divided into 10 cohorts of 600 men each, and then the cohort was further broken down into six centuries of 100 men each. Thus, a centurion was a man who led a century. The Roman centurion was the equivalent of a modern-day sergeant. You know, sergeants are known as the backbone of the military. They're really the epitome of the soldier. Sergeants are tough. They're trustworthy. They bark orders and they lead men. And unlike the brass... They fight in the trenches right alongside their men. And as soldiers say, there's no rank in a foxhole. In a battle, men, they look past superficial distinctions. Fighting for your life alongside another man bonds you together. Perhaps this centurion and his servant had shared a foxhole or two. Maybe his loyal aide had saved his life in battle, and now the centurion is trying to return the favor. And yet the doctors say that this illness is unbeatable. It's going to take a miracle. And yet that's what the centurion sees in Jesus, a miracle. Hey, sergeants are trained to see men and to mold men and to make men better. Sergeants know men. That's why... When it came to Jesus, this man knew that this was more than a mere man. This man had sized up Jesus and knew that Jesus could help him. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Now, soldiers go through proper channels. And this centurion realized that Romans were not accepted in Hebrew society. This is why he solicits help from his Jewish friends. He sends the leaders of the local synagogue to represent him. We're told, and when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. Oh, for he loves our nation, has built us a synagogue. The Jews who go to represent him, they point out his good works and his charity. They portray him as worthy of God's intervention in the life of his servant. And yet the problem is no human being is deserving of God's blessing, no matter what we do. Anytime we receive from God, it's because of His grace. Thankfully, Jesus suspected that there was more to this story. Verse 6. Then Jesus went with them, 
And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, O Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. Notice, just the opposite attitude was true. The centurion felt unworthy to receive Jesus and to receive from God. The Jews had said, bless me because of me, whereas the centurion said, bless me in spite of me. You see, the centurion isn't trying to barter his goodness for God's blessing. Listen, for many of us, we approach God this way. We approach him with this very attitude. We say, Lord, look at all I'm doing for you. Look at all I'm giving to you. Look at all I'm sacrificing for you. Now, I deserve a blessing. Now, you need to bless me. Understand, God's blessing is not for sale. It's too valuable to go so cheap. In the eyes of God, your goodness is nothing more than filthy rags. Hey, God never plays tit for tat. You can't earn God's kindness. You humble yourself and you trust in His grace. And that's why He blesses you. I I love the quote by Mark Twain. He said, Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. (laughs) You know, our dog is more deserving than we are. Faith is not faith in my efforts or my merit or my performance. Saving faith. Hey, receiving faith is the belief that God wants to save me and bless me in spite of my sin and because of his great love. Well, this was the centurion's faith. And thus he told Jesus, But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, the centurion understood authority, how authority works. He both gave orders and received orders. And he knows that Jesus has all authority, even authority over disease. So if Jesus just commands the illness to leave, it has to obey. He has the authority. Obviously, this centurion has already concluded Jesus' rank. He is commander of chief of the universe, of all things. Hey, faith's confidence is not in our works. It's in Jesus' word. Lord, just say the word and it'll be done. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And he turned around and he said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. This Italian soldier has greater faith than what I found among the Jews. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. A miracle. You know, lots of folks know who to approach, but they don't know how to approach him. The centurion's request was based on Jesus' mercy, not his own merit. Let's learn that lesson. Let's submit to God's chain of command. Jesus has all authority and he wants to bless us. Thus, we should bow to him. 
Notice, he wanted this centurion. He wanted the blessing, but not without the bowing. He submitted to Jesus' authority. He saluted Jesus, and Jesus in turn blessed him. I hope you'll salute Jesus as well and bow your life to his authority. Well, verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. Nain was a Galilean village about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum there on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples had left Capernaum on the heels of a miracle healing. There was great joy. There was laughter. There was happiness in their entourage. I doubt if anyone but Jesus noticed the freshly dug grave just outside the city walls. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. There was a reason for that freshly dug grave. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. Two crowds, one going into the gate, one coming out of the gate. You know, when you visit the ancient ruins there in Israel, you'll learn how the cities designed their entrances. A city gate was a narrow, narrow portal that consisted of several tight right-handed angles, different little passageways. The configuration prohibited an invading army from getting up a head of steam and charging and ramming the gate. It made it easier for the residents of the city to defend their walls. The drawback was terrible congestion during rush hour traffic. On a normal day, getting in and out of the gate could be a terrible thing. On this day, a real snarl-up occurs in the gate of Nain. A funeral procession collides with a party bus. A widow's dead son, her only son, meets God's only son. You see, the Lord of life and his crowd, they're coming in. Whereas the corpse and the funeral procession is going out. Now typically a Hebrew funeral procession was a walking wake. It was led by the rabbi. And he would walk along proclaiming the good deeds of the deceased. He was followed by the musicians and the mourners who sang melancholy tunes and different lamentations. The Jews felt the louder and the more demonstrative their weeping the better. Behind the mourners came the corpse carted on a wicker stretcher. Its hair and nails had been clipped. The body was washed, anointed, and wrapped. The face was uncovered. The arms were folded on the chest. The face was uncovered so that people could look on and say their goodbyes. And then behind the corpse came the family and the friends. And leading the way here was the greatly grieved mother. Recently, this woman had lost her husband. She was a widow. And now she's bearing a son. Imagine. Here is a woman who's living a nightmare. Now when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. On an overcast spring morning in 1986, Tom picked up a rental truck. He and his family were moving to a larger home. It was an exciting time. He was a cautious man, and so he carefully checked around the tires before rolling out of the driveway. He wanted to make sure that his kids were, weren't playing somewhere nearby. The coast seemed clear, but it wasn't. Tom rolled the truck down the driveway. 
And he crushed the little body of his 20-month-old son, killing him instantly. The little boy had been playing in the garage, and he had raced out at the last second to say goodbye to daddy. You know, few situations in life are as difficult to deal with as the death of a child. One bereaved dad writes, If your father dies, your past dies. But if your child dies, your future dies. It's hard for people to know the feeling. I'm sure. A child's death rips open the heart of a parent. It leaves a gaping hole. And yet Jesus understood. He sees this woman who brought a child into the world and now is escorting that same child out. Jesus sees her pain. He feels her pain. And he locks eyes with this woman. We're told he had compassion. And then he gave this impossible command. He says, do not weep. Verse 14. Then he came and he touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. What a colossal collision. Right there in the gate of Nain, life and death, ram head on. Light slams into darkness. Peace and pain crash together. Sorrow and joy lock bumpers. A showdown occurs between the grim reaper and the resurrection and the life. And Jesus commands this corpse, young man, I say to you, arise. And so, he who was dead sat up and began to speak. Jesus crashes a funeral. He works a miracle and he spoils the spades of the grave diggers once again. But notice the the line that follows here in verse 15. And he presented him to his mother. He presented the boy to his mother. You could translate the phrase, he gave the boy back to his mom. I like that. What death had stole from this mother, Jesus was able to give it right back. Hey, perhaps you're the parent of a child who's been stolen from you. Not by death, thankfully. Not yet. But maybe by sin. Or by Satan. Or by peer influence. Or by this wicked world. You're a mom. You're a parent. And your child has been stolen from you. Understand, Jesus sees your pain. He locks eyes with you and he he has compassion on you. Weary parent, trust your child to Jesus. He'll overcome the enemy. He'll retrieve your child. No enemy is too great for Jesus. He sees death and rolls back its consequences. He's not afraid of death. He knows he can fix death. If he can fix that, he can fix any problem. Even today, these same two crowds still travel in and out of the gate of life. There's Jesus and his crowd, the hopeful. And then there's the hopeless of this world, the funeral procession of this world. In one crowd, there's those who laugh and love and sing and believe and walk with Jesus. And then there's the folks who have succumbed to death and despair before they're dead. In which crowd do you travel? I say trust in Jesus. 
I say don't succumb to death before you die. I say believe in Jesus, trust in him. Hang with the crowd who believes in life and love and laughter and watch Jesus work miracles for you. Well, then fear came upon all. I'm sure it did. And they all glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen up among us and and God has visited his people. I mean, how else do you account for corpses returning to life? God has visited. And this report about him went through all Judea and all the surrounding region. Verse 18, then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men who had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, now at first, this is strange. On the banks of the Jordan, John had already proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, He had pointed to him and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But since those early days, John had undergone some serious hardship. And pain has a way of distorting your perspective, of creating confusion. When John confronted King Herod's wickedness, the vindictive ruler arrested him and locked him up in the fortress of Marcus, the Dead Sea prison that King Herod had built. Probably the Jewish Alcatraz. That's where John had been holding, held. It was blistering hot. It was down in the Dead Sea. It was this iron dungeon. It was an oven where John cooked. Can you imagine being in that terrible fortress in the heat of the day? John knew Jesus was the Messiah. But you see, Jesus didn't fit the Jewish messianic expectations John had been influenced by the prevailing notions of his day. He was looking for a Messiah who would right all wrongs and punish the wicked and overthrow the foreign occupation. I mean, in contrast, Jesus seemed content with just healing and helping and and forgiving folks. What about some judgment, Jesus? What about some government overthrow? And John was confused. And so he sent his disciples for a clarification. Verse 21. In that very hour, Jesus cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Hey, Jesus was challenging John to reevaluate his expectations. You see, all too often we make assumptions about God. We think we know what God should and shouldn't do. And if the work of God doesn't match up with our presuppositions, we question God's presence or His wisdom or His power or His faithfulness. Heard of a man who ignored and neglected his wife. Every day he came home from work, just flopped down in the lazy boy and fell off to sleep. Never said more than a handful of words to his poor wife. One day he felt impressed to do better. Something just came over him. He came home early that night. He had flowers and candy. 
And, and rather than just walk through the garage as his usual routine happened to be, he wanted to greet his wife with a kind word and with a, a dear kiss. And so he went to the front door and rang the doorbell. When she answered the door, she took one look at him and she just bursted out crying. He said, honey, what's wrong? She responded, it's been a horrible day. Billy broke his arm. A ball flew through the kitchen window. Susie made a deal on a report card. The bank called and I bounced two checks. While I was on the phone, I burned the dinner and to top it all off, now you come home drunk. You see, often our preconceived expectations can cause us to misinterpret life. And particularly God's actions. Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What does that mean? It means happy are the people who can follow Jesus when he doesn't follow their plans. Who will ad-lib even when Jesus doesn't follow their script. In other words, happy is the person who dances with Jesus and lets him lead. But when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? I mean, did you expect a weak, vacillating reed blowing in the wind? Or did you expect a chameleon who changed colors to blend in? Of course not. Verse 25. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury in king's courts. I mean, John was no fat cat living off the public purse. He was no politician. John was no TV preacher. He said, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And here Jesus quotes Isaiah 40, verse 1. It was a prophecy that predicted Messiah's forerunner. You see, John was more than a mere prophet. The Old Testament spoke of John. He would be Jesus' advance man, his forerunner. Now Jesus makes a remarkable statement in verse 28. He says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now on the one hand, this was quite an endorsement. He's saying, John is more righteous than any human could be by his own efforts. John is the most meritorious among men. But compared to those who are in the kingdom, compared to those who have received the righteousness of Christ, John is at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, not even John's righteousness begins to approach the righteousness that we have received in Christ Jesus. The righteousness that pleases God. Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying that you are more righteous than John the Baptist because you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. 
In other words, in rejecting John's ministry, they had hardened their hearts to the voice of God. They had blown off John, and now they definitely were rejecting Jesus. And in the next few verses, Jesus provides a commentary on the spiritual mood in Israel at that time. Verse 31. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? Well, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned to you and you didn't weep. Jesus here quotes a popular jingle that you might have heard on the playgrounds in Jerusalem during the first century A.D. People say, play the flute and we'll dance. But the flute plays and nobody dances. People talk a good talk, in other words, but they never follow through. Jesus is saying, this is what what the mood in Israel is today. Everybody's talking the talk, but nobody walks the walk. The practices of the Jews fail to match up to their promises. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And here he's giving an example here of how fickle the people were. John comes neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Israel was so fickle. Rather than quick to obey, they were filled with excuses. They rejected John. Why? Because he was too austere, too strict. He deprived himself of common pleasures, whereas they rejected Jesus for the opposite reason, because he was too at home in his own skin, because Jesus enjoyed a good meal and a fine wine. Apparently, neither approach satisfied the Jews. It's been said some people are more interested in looking for excuses than truth. Indeed, that was the case with the Pharisees. And then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. Now, an ancient Hebrew home was square, and there was a courtyard out in the middle. And in the house of a rabbi, this courtyard was open to his students. They could come, they would sit there and listen and learn, gather information, discuss theology. The courtyard of the Pharisee was Sort of like a public square. It was open to the, to the people of the community. Well, behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. It was a common custom for women in those days to wear alabaster vials around their neck, little ceramic containers of perfume or ointment. Verse 38, and this woman stood at Jesus' feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now remember, we're told this woman was a sinner. She'd been a naughty girl. She was one of the bad girls. And everyone knew about her soiled and sullied reputation. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, 
for she is a sinner. Now remember, the Jews believed in guilt or innocence by association. You see, all religion differentiates between clean and unclean. And the goal of religion is to steer clear of what's unclean. This Pharisee figured that if Jesus was truly a holy man, he wouldn't touch a sinful woman. And he wouldn't allow that woman to touch him. Or else he could become unclean. Here was the amazing trait about Jesus. He dared to touch and be touched by unclean people. Notice this. His holiness didn't distance him from sinners. You think the more holy a person is, the less likely they are to come in contact with sinful people? Just the opposite is true. Jesus' holiness didn't distance him from sinners. In fact, it made him more attractive to sinners. They wanted what he had. Grace, you see, bridges. Grace is a bridge. Grace bridges the divide created by religion. Grace reaches out to sinners. Rather than divide between clean and unclean, between holy and unholy, grace says we're all sinners. We're all in need of God's grace. Everyone should come. Grace builds bridges. But this is what drew the Pharisees' criticism. And beware, you too will be criticized if your love for sinners sends you to the wrong side of the tracks. If people who have problems start gravitating towards you, you'll be judged as well, just as Jesus was this day. But Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. Now now notice we're told that Jesus is answering Simon here. Yet no question had ever been asked. If you look closely back at verse 39, we're told Simon spoke to himself. Apparently, Jesus had read Simon's mind. He knew what was going on in his head. And he's addressing his thoughts here. He confronts Simon's callousness with a parable. Verse 41. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. In our day and age, probably about 80 bucks. And the other 50 denarii, about 8 bucks. Ten times, the guy who owed the 500, ten times as much. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Now tell me, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon. Notice he turned to the woman, but he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. Travel in ancient Israel combined dirt roads and open-toed sandals. That means that dirt feet were always a way of life. And it was common courtesy. I'm also sure it kept the cost of the carpet cleaning down to keep a basin of water right there next to the door. So that guests, when they entered the home, they could wash their feet before they came into the living quarters. This Pharisee had invited Jesus over for dinner. 
but he had never considered Jesus more than just a curiosity. If he'd have thought of Jesus as his master or as his Lord or even his teacher, someone he could learn from, then surely he would have humbled himself and washed Jesus' feet. But he had ignored Jesus' feet, whereas this woman had come and had lavishly washed his feet with her tears and, and with the perfume. An incredible expression of love. And so Jesus continues, You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Wow. Simon had been arrogant towards Jesus. This woman had been extravagant towards Jesus. She showed gratitude. Simon had an attitude. You know, the fruit of forgiveness buds and sprouts almost immediately. When you've been forgiven much, you won't hold back. You'll love extravagantly. You'll love much, just as this woman did. And here's where Jesus dropped the bomb, verse 48. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? All of a sudden, Jesus throws them a theological knuckleball. It confused the Jews. They understood rightly that only God can forgive sins. So why is Jesus doing what only God can do? Was he claiming to be God? Well, indeed he was. And then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Chapter 8. Now it came to pass, speaking of women, by the way, chapter 8. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And he names three. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. And Susanna, oh Susanna. And many others who provided for him from their substance. Who says men have a monopoly on ministry? Luke chapter 8 lists the loyal ladies who supported our Lord. Apparently, this was the very first women's ministry right here. And it was very unusual, understand, for a woman to play such a visible role in the ministry of a rabbi in ancient Israel. Usually, women would stay in the shadows. In fact, some rabbis wouldn't be caught Dead, speaking to a woman in public. It was a disgrace. Obviously, this was not Jesus' approach. He valued women. He appreciated their gifts and their friendship. And he gave them a prominent role in his ministry. And Luke here mentions three of these ladies. First was Mary Magdalene, who was delivered from seven demons. How Jesus had transformed this woman's life. Second was Joanna, wife of an important fish official. In King Herod's court, 
And then the third was Susanna. We don't know much about her, but her name means Lily. She must have been a beautiful lady. I certainly believe the Bible teaches strong male leadership in the home and in the church. But that doesn't mean that women can't play a vital role in ministry. These gals and still others played instrumental roles in Jesus' ministry. Well, verse 4 tells us, And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now some of the seed was eaten by birds. Some of the seed failed to sink roots and really take hold. Still other seed was choked out by the thorns. But some of the seed fell on good good ground, fertile ground, and produced a tremendous yield. Well, then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. In other words, parables are clever teaching devices. They perform two seemingly contradictory purposes at the same time. Here's what a parable does. It both blinds and it reveals. A parable will open the eyes of some while shutting the eyes of others. And it does both at the same time. It keeps some people from seeing, but it helps other people see. If you care little about spiritual things... If your heart isn't right, you'll hear a parable and it'll just sell right over your head. It'll just mean nothing to you. But if you care, if you're open, if you're looking for God to speak to you, then the parable will illustrate and hammer home the point in a way that you can understand on a feeling level, on a guttural level. You see, it either blinds you to the truth or it opens your eyes and reveals the truth. In verse 11, Jesus interprets this parable. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And understand, the scripture is like a seed. You see, there's life in a seed. Nothing has to be done to a seed to cause it to grow, but to simply plant it in the right kind of soil. The life is in the seed. The seed has a vitality that comes from within itself. And the same is true with God's Word. You see, spiritual growth isn't up to us. It's God's work. We receive the seed. The life is in the seed. And it begins to change us from the inside out. All we supply is fertile soil, a repentant heart. The parable of the sower is one of Jesus' most important parables. In fact, this is a seminal passage For here Jesus shares some revolutionary concepts about the kingdom of God. The Jews were concerned about the kingdom of God. First, he tells us that the kingdom comes not with a pounding, but with a planting. 
Not with a harvest of judgment, but with a season of sowing. Not with force, but with faith. Not with war, but with a word. And this was revolutionary in the minds of the Jews, in their understanding. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God comes as a seed, and it roots in people's hearts. In other words, the kingdom of God can be resisted. And this was revolutionary to the Jews. For the Jews assumed that the kingdom of God was irresistible. That when Messiah came, he would take control of the nations. That he would force the world to bow before him. Yet in this parable, Jesus says that God's kingdom doesn't take root in every heart. Its growth depends on the soil in which it's planted. On the condition of our hearts. Sadly, it can be resisted. Verse 12 Jesus says, those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. The wayside was the ground that had been trampled by travel. It was the packed earth. It was that ground that was solid as cement. And sadly, it's like the heart of some people. Hard and sensitive. The word lands there, but it doesn't take root. It's not absorbed. In fact, it's eaten up by the birds. Jesus says, by the devil. Satan exploits the resistance and stubbornness that's been developed in that person's heart. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. There's this initial receptance. But these have no root who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. There are other people who hear God's offer of pardon and peace, and they want its benefits. They rejoice. There's this initial receptance, but they fail to think through its implications. Their faith never grows past a flirtation. It never becomes a commitment, a devotion. And the ones that fell among thorns are those, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. See, a third person gets distracted. He gets distracted by materialism. There's this spiritual longing inside. But but they can never get past what's tangible. Money and pleasure end up more important to them than a relationship with God. And they miss it because of Money or thrill or thing. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Hey, hardness, shallowness, materialism can send a person to hell, whereas humility and repentance and faith are what send a person to heaven. Here's the point of the parable. The condition of your heart ultimately determines the salvation of your soul. This is why we need to make sure we're constantly plowing up that fallow ground. That we're maintaining a repentant and a humbling heart. Do you aerate your heart on a regular basis? With repentance and with humility and with faith? You should. Verse 16 No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but he sets it on a lampstand, 
that those who enter may see the light. Notice this. Just shining your light for Jesus is not enough. Turning your life into a candle is only half of the mission. Positioning that candle on a candlestick so all the world can see. This is the Christian's greater goal. Are you living in a position, in a place where others can see the light that you're attempting to shine? He says, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Wow. Recently, I I read a report about the proliferation of wiretaps and bugging devices and little miniature cameras. Be careful. Walk around today and you never know who's recording you, who's taping you. And yet, according to Jesus, this is nothing new. This has always been the case, whether you realized it or not, because God is recording your every action. God is eavesdropping on your every word. One day, all of the skeletons are going to come toppling out of the closet. Verse 18, Therefore take heed how you hear, for whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. Now here's a principle. Spiritually speaking, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It's true. You listen to God, you receive from God, and what happens? He pours more into your life. He intensifies that hunger that you're feeling. But you turn a deaf ear to God, and you effectively shut out His blessings, and God will no longer bother to communicate. The rich get richer, and the poor get poorer. This is why Jesus says, take heed how you hear. Do you listen with your heart? Helen Keller was born deaf, dumb, and blind. But when she was finally taught how to communicate and told about Jesus, she made this comment. She said, I always knew there was such a person. I mean, Helen never saw with her eyes nor heard with her ears, but her heart had picked up on the presence of God and on the message of God. And here's the moral of the story for us. If you want to know God, then maintain a tender heart. Plow up that fallow ground. Keep your mind humble and open to God. Keep your heart sensitive and touchable by God. Always remember the condition of your heart ultimately determines the salvation of your soul. And there we have it. Tonight's Through the Bible Study. Hope you've enjoyed it. Next week, we'll start right back in chapter 8, verse 19. Jesus receives a visit from some family members. And we'll talk about that next time.